Hello and welcome back to The Killer Kind. It's your host, Stephanie Miller, as always. I hope you're having a great October so far. The day this episode comes out will be less than a week away from Halloween, so I hope you're ready. I would love to know if you're the kind of person who passes out candy on Halloween, or do you have kids so you go out trick-or-treating with them, or maybe you stay home and watch Halloween movies. Let me know in the comments on today's episode post over on the Instagram page. I'd love to know. Switching gears a little, I have to mention the update in the Gabby Petito case. So the FBI released a statement that Brian Laundrie's remains were found last week. I don't know if they've determined the cause of death or even if they've really confirmed that it was him. I've seen a couple mixed reports since I first read about it. Um, But at this point, I'm sure he has died and I'm sure it was suicide. I mean, that's the big number one suspicion. But I'm sure we'll all be continuing to follow along with the story to see what the end result is. Now, today's episode is our third and final Halloween episode of this season. It's one that involves Halloween, someone within the Kennedy family, and basically one that proves money is power. So, without further ado, let's dive into the murder of Martha Moxley. The night of October 31st, 1975 was just like any other Halloween evening. Halloween decorations on every lawn, little kids running around in costumes, and lots and lots of candy. That is especially true for the gated neighborhood of Bellhaven in Greenwich, Connecticut. Bellhaven was the richest neighborhood in the richest city of Connecticut. Some have said it was the pinnacle of the American dream. That was until the day before Halloween of 1975. In this area, the day before Halloween was known as Mischief Night, where local teens and troublemakers would go around rolling people's trees with toilet paper, smashing pumpkins, and basically just wreaking havoc, but having pretty harmless fun. Think about it like a local high school's homecoming week in a small town. (laughs) Martha Elizabeth Moxley was born in Piedmont, California on August 30th, 1960 to the parents of Dorothy and David Moxley, who had an older son named John. They seemed to be the perfect family. Dorothy was a stay-at-home mom and David was a successful and high-profile accountant for an international accounting and management firm. Martha herself was very smart, making straight A's year after year in school, and she played basketball as well. The family moved to Bellhaven community in Greenwich, Connecticut when Martha was just 14 years old. Martha's mom raved about the community in a later interview, saying that Bellhaven was, quote, one of the neighborhoods where the kids could just meet people. Very safe. Everyone liked everyone. If you're someone who lives in a neighborhood like that, lock your doors. There's bad people everywhere. Nowhere is 100% safe. But I do know this was 1975, and evil wasn't as widespread as it's known to be today. So on October 30th, 1975, 15-year-old Martha left her house to meet up with some friends to participate in this mischief night. 
Now, Martha and her 17-year-old brother, John, had separate groups of friends. And I believe John went out with a group of his friends and Martha went out with hers. Their mom, Dorothy, stayed home that night and their dad, David, was away on a business trip. Now, Dorothy had stayed home and spent the night painting in her bedroom. This was something she did quite often. And at some point between 9.30 and 10 p.m. that night, Dorothy hears some voices outside the front door. Now, again, this was a night where a bunch of kids are out running around in the neighborhood, but she stops painting when she hears the noise, and it was loud enough to where she thought maybe Martha or John had gotten home. But when she looks outside, she doesn't see anything. So she kind of lets it go and just goes back to painting. A little while later, John comes home and he arrives before Martha. And it's a little strange because Martha would always get home before John because he she was younger and was supposed to be home earlier than her brother. John said in a later interview that he remembers being glad that he got home before Martha because he thought that she's finally the one staying out late and that she might finally be the one getting in trouble for being out. Now, with that said, I saw the report that stated that Martha had actually been grounded this weekend because she had gotten in trouble earlier in the week. But since it was the holiday, Martha was allowed to go out with friends that night. Dorothy asked John when he got home if he knew where his sister was, and he said he didn't know. And the whole thing just didn't sit right with Dorothy, so she decided to stay up until Martha arrived home. And this is something that she would always do. She would always stay up until both of her children got home for the night. But at around 2.30 to 3 a.m. when Martha still wasn't home, that's when Dorothy decided to wake John up and have him go out to look for his sister. She knew it shouldn't take long because the neighborhood wasn't very big. However, after searching for almost 45 minutes, Martha was nowhere to be found. At 3.45 a.m., Dorothy Moxley called the police to report her daughter missing. And I'll just stop and say, the timeline of that night is very hard to find, so I don't have a ton of details for you for the night in question. But I do know that at some point in the early morning hours, Dorothy started calling around to Martha's friends she knew that she had been with that night. And she called the home of Martha's friend, Sheila McGuire. She tells Dorothy that that the last time she saw Martha was at around 9.30 p.m. when she saw her friend with Thomas Skakel, quote, falling together behind the fence near the Skakel family pool house. Sheila reassured Dorothy that her daughter was likely still with Thomas, and we'll get more into him shortly. Now, apparently Dorothy waited by the front window of the house for her daughter to come home. She actually ended up falling asleep for a short amount of time, and when she woke up, she rushed up to her daughter's room, hoping to find her safe in her bed. However, Martha Moxley was still nowhere to be found. It was after this that Dorothy started calling more of Martha's friends to see if they knew where she was, and all of them reported last seeing Martha on the last stop of the night at the home of Thomas and Michael Skakel. So let's get into this for a second. So Thomas and Michael Skakel were two teenagers who went to the same school as Martha and who lived just across the street and down a few houses from the Moxleys. And supposedly Thomas and Martha had a thing going on at the time. 
Some have said he was her boyfriend, but from what I could tell, the two weren't seriously dating, but they did like each other, or seemed to, and they would hang out from time to time, and were always flirty with each other. Now, Thomas and Michael Skakel were the nephews of Ethel Skakel, who had been married to Robert F. Kennedy, the brother of the late president, John F. Kennedy. Robert Kennedy had been assassinated like his brother in 1968, five years after JFK. But either way, because of their Kennedy relation, the Skakel family was very wealthy and very well known within the Bellhaven community. And just like the Kennedy family, the Skakels had their own family tragedies. Thomas and Michael's parents were Rushton and Ann Skakel, but sadly their mother Ann had passed away in 1973 from brain cancer when Thomas was 15 and Michael was just 13 years old. Michael, from what I could tell, really took his mother's death worse than anyone. He started having bad grades and abusing alcohol. Michael's cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., later wrote that he was, quote, a small, sensitive child, the runt of the litter. His cousin also said that Michael and Thomas's father, Rushton Skakel, was, quote, a harsh and occasionally violent alcoholic father who both ignored and abused Michael. Rushton was a spiraling alcoholic, and it was pretty well known. And it was because of all this that Rushton hired cooks and nannies to take care of the house and the boys. However, the teenage boys were known in the community as being hateful to the staff that worked at their home. Nannies who were hired to take care of the children typically only lasted a few months before quitting. One nanny reported bruises on her legs from the boys kicking her when she would tell them no. However, despite their aggressive attitudes to people inside their home, Thomas and Michael had a lot of friends, and they were considered some of the most popular kids in school. I say that, but that's usually how it goes, isn't it? I mean, the richer, the meaner the kids are, are always the ones that are considered the most popular. That's at least my personal experience. Just saying. Now, Martha and her friends were a part of a larger friend group that included Michael and Thomas Skakel. And the three would hang out pretty regularly. This was proven by a diary that Martha kept pretty much her entire life. She wrote numerous entries talking about the times that she would hang out with the Skakel boys. At one point, she wrote about what a jerk Michael Skakel was, saying that he told her to stop leading him on if she didn't like him. And she mentioned in another entry that a group of them had gone driving around in Thomas's car. And she said Thomas made her feel uncomfortable when she was sitting in his lap while he was driving and he was rubbing her legs. From what I could tell, Thomas and Michael had this constant sibling rivalry going on. They were always trying to outdo the other, no matter what the situation. But it was known that they would also fight over girls. And a few of Thomas's friends said that Michael had a crush on Martha first and that Thomas only went after her strictly to annoy his brother. But now let's get back to Martha, who has gone missing at this point. So when Dorothy calls back around to some of these friends that Martha had been seen with the night before, and they all reported last seeing her with the Skakels at their home, Dorothy decides to drive over there to look for her daughter herself. When she arrives and knocks on the door, Michael Skakel answers the front door and basically says she's not here. 
I don't know where she could be. Sorry. <laughs> but while Dorothy's standing there, she notices a camper sitting in the Skakel's driveway. And she decides to ask if she can check the camper to see if her daughter is hiding in there. Michael tells her that it's fine. She can search the camper if she wants. But sadly, the camper was found to be empty. So Dorothy doesn't really know what to do at this point. She goes back to her house and her friend Jean comes over, who I believe is Martha's friend Sheila's mom. Jean comes over to keep her friend company and to go over what they should do next. And while this is happening, Sheila decides to go out on foot to look for her friend herself. I'm sure at this point she has started to feel like something bad has happened or something is wrong. So she takes off to the spot where she last saw her friend, which was the Skakel house. And I don't know how, but she checks the Skakel's backyard. I'm not sure if it was fenced in or not, which is why I say I'm not sure how she looked. But either way, there was no sign of Martha. Now, after checking around the neighborhood a little bit more after that, she decides to go back to Martha's house and look around outside. And when she gets to the backyard... That is when she makes a gruesome discovery. Sheila discovers the bludgeoned body of her best friend at the base of a tree in the Moxley's backyard. Sheila immediately screams, and her screams can be heard from inside the Moxley home where Jean and Dorothy were at at the time. Dorothy said she basically collapsed at the sound of Sheila's scream, knowing instantly that it couldn't be good. Jean told Dorothy to wait inside while she went to find out what had happened. And Sheila runs straight up to Jean and through her tears, she tells her that she has found Martha. Jean goes back inside and before she can even say anything, Dorothy asked, is she dead? And Jean simply replies, I think so. 911 is immediately called and authorities race to the scene. Now, it's been about 30 years since a homicide had occurred in this town, so authorities in the whole town were shocked to hear that something like this had happened in their small town. When police arrive, they see Martha lying face down beneath a pine tree in her backyard with her pants pulled down to her ankles. It was clear she had sustained multiple blows to her body and a broken piece of golf club was sticking out of her neck. More shattered pieces of that same golf club were found, including the head of the club lying a few feet away from the body. Whoever did this had used so much force and hit her so many times that the metal part of the shaft had split in half and had caused Martha to have deep depression fractures in her skull. Now, an autopsy was done, and despite her pants being pulled down, it was determined there was no sign of rape or sexual assault having occurred. When examining the rest of the Moxley property, there were several drops of blood found from where the body was back to the family's driveway. And there was a drag pattern that started near the driveway and led back to the tree where her body was found suggesting that she might have been struck as she was walking up her driveway. So, who could have done this to this beautiful, sweet young girl who had her whole life ahead of her? Well, police started to look at Thomas because multiple people reported last seeing Martha with him at his house. 
Thomas claimed that he last saw her leaving his house at around 9.30 p.m., heading towards her home. He said after she left, he went inside the house and watched TV downstairs with Kenneth Littleton, which is the Skakel's live-in tutor. And initially, his alibi seemed convincing. However, that story wasn't consistent with other people who gave statements, including Martha's friend Sheila, who, like I mentioned earlier, said that she saw Martha and Thomas falling together over the fence at 930. So it doesn't make sense that he saw her leaving his house at that time. Plus, when Kenneth Littleton was questioned, he claimed that Thomas didn't come inside the home and watch TV with him until after 10.30, not 9.30. Michael Skakel was second on the police suspect list, and his alibi was similar to his brother's, but he said he had been at a cousin's house watching TV at the time. Although, this cousin never came forward to confirm Michael's alibi. And lastly, the third suspect on investigator suspect list was Kenneth Littleton, the live-in tutor, because Kenneth had only started working for the Skakels the day Martha was last seen, and it was later discovered that he had been fired at his previous tutoring job because the family discovered he had been on a five-year probation for burglary charges. And he failed to disclose that to the previous family he worked for, as well as the Skakel family. I'm not exactly sure when, but at some point in the investigation, it was determined that the golf club used in the murder was found to be part of a set owned by Anne Skakel, the mother, again, of Thomas and Michael, who had passed away. So, investigators believed it was somebody who lived in the Skakel home that committed this heinous crime. However, Rushton Skakel said that those golf clubs were always used to play around with outside and were constantly left around their property. So he was claiming that anyone could have picked up the golf club and used it in the murder. Rushton became more and more defensive and less willing to cooperate with the investigation. In fact, on January 22, 1976, Rushton Skakel told police they would no longer have access to his family or their property. And despite police efforts after this, the case grew cold. The case would remain cold for many, many years. Over the years, both Thomas and Michael Skakel significantly changed their alibis for the night of Martha's murder, and they both remained high on the suspect list. Michael claimed in one of his multiple alibis that he was, quote, window peeping and masturbating in a tree beside the Moxley's property from 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. That's disgusting. Nobody needs to know that. Not even the police. That's clearly not the truth. But who says something like that? I mean, I guess a teenage boy. I, I guess that makes sense. In 1978, a few years after the murder, Michael was arrested for drunk driving in New York State, and to avoid criminal charges, his family sent him to the Elan School in Poland, Maine, which was a treatment center for troubled youth, where he reportedly received treatment for alcoholism. It wasn't until 1991 when a man by the name of William Kennedy Smith was tried for rape. And during that trial, a rumor surfaced that he had been present at the Skakel home on the night of Martha Moxley's murder. 
and he insinuated that he might have been involved. However, no evidence of his involvement was ever found, but it did spark new light in the case. Once Rushton Skakel found out about this, he immediately hired a private investigator and started trying to clear his family's name. But this would prove to be the Skakel family downfall. The private investigator hired by the Skakel family worked for a prestigious Long Island private investigative firm called Sutton Associates, and they as a team began reinvestigating the murder of Martha Moxley. They were hired by the Skakel family to prove Thomas and Michael Skakel innocent of the crime of murder. The firm supposedly spent several years and reportedly over a million dollars poring over the case and re-interviewing witnesses. I mean, they did just as much, if not more, work than the police investigating the crime. Now, the Skakel family had been reassured that the investigation would be completely private and would not be released to the public. They even had everyone involved in compiling the report sign non-disclosure agreements. However, there was one person who slipped through the cracks and did not have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. A young guy fresh out of college who was working for Sutton Associates at the time was tasked to compile the main investigator's findings, including psychiatric reports and interviews into a narrative form with a timeline of events. I feel like that'd be a fun job, just saying. But as this guy was compiling everything, he became emotionally invested in the case and felt bad for the Moxley family because they had gone all this time not knowing who murdered their beautiful daughter. So he ends up reaching out to a local journalist and gave him the entire report that he had compiled. And the journalist publicly publishes the report. After this, the young man who leaked the report was confronted supposedly by a member of the Kennedy family, someone within the family whose job is to minimize bad press or sort of take care of things like this. And he was asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which would keep him from being able to talk about the report any further. But the damage was already done because the report was very, very telling. The report states that both Thomas and Michael Skakel had lied to authorities about the night of October 30th, 1975. Thomas Skakel admittedly altered his story at least once. He told the Greenwich Police Department and others that he last saw Martha leaving his house at 9.30 p.m. However, he told Sutton Associates that he actually spent approximately an additional 30 minutes with Martha engaging in a sexual encounter. The report then states that they know that Michael Skakel lied as well because he gave two different stories to the Greenwich Police Department and Sutton Associates. He supposedly stated to the Sutton investigator that he had not been watching TV with his cousin like he told police. He told them that he had been drunkenly roaming around the neighborhood and had wandered into Martha's backyard. He stated that he climbed a tree in the backyard and could see Martha's bedroom. And this is when he tells the disgusting story that I mentioned earlier, that he looked into Martha's bedroom and masturbated at the thought of her sleeping in her bed. Now, after he claimed to have climbed back down the tree and went home. Now, the Sutton Report states the obvious, that Michael Skakel willingly placed himself at the exact point 
in the crime scene. And he climbed the same tree that her body was found underneath. So she likely would have been already dead at this point or very, very shortly after, which means he would have at least seen something. The report did say that Michael reportedly once confessed to the murder of Martha Moxley in a therapy session while a patient at the Elan Treatment Center that I mentioned earlier, but he apparently quickly recanted his confession. The report goes on to note personality changes in Kenneth Littleton and tells that he went from being a young, athletic, handsome, and upstanding man to someone who fell victim to heavy substance abuse and extreme psychiatric problems. He was arrested in 1976 on Nantucket for grand larceny, breaking and entering, and burglary. The report states that his criminal record would grow from that point on, with more recent charges of shoplifting, assault and battery, and numerous DWI convictions. In summary, the report says that all three men, Thomas, Michael, and their tutor, Kenneth, have all been shady in regards to Martha's murder. They have all since dove deep into alcoholism and lived reckless lives, creating long lists of criminal charges and seem to be on a dark path, insinuating that they are haunted by something. Could it be that they were all involved in Martha's murder somehow? The report ended by saying that Thomas hadn't been the one to murder Martha, but that Michael had most likely been the one to have committed the crime. That being said, the report suggested that Thomas may have helped move Martha's body, but it added that that was likely his only involvement. Now, everyone was shocked by these findings, to say the least, and when Rushton Skakel read the report, he was just as shocked as everyone else. But, being the shady character he is, he paid Sutton Associates $750,000 to help bury the report, which is just disgusting that there's people out there like this that could do things like this, pay people off like that. People that are willing to pay somebody to protect a murderer. I get it's his son. I'm not saying he should have just ran off to the police and said, my son did it. But he should be paying people off to keep it quiet. But luckily for the Skakels, it worked for a while anyways. In 1993, Michael married a professional golfer named Margot Sheridan. In 1998, the couple had a son who they named George, and shortly after, they moved to Hobe Sound, Florida. In June of 1998, a one-man grand jury, however, was called to review the evidence of the case. And after an 18-month investigation, it was decided that there was enough evidence to charge Michael Skakel with murder. On January 9, 2000, an arrest warrant was issued. Michael surrendered to authorities later that day. However, he was released shortly after on $500,000 bail. On March 14th, Michael was called to a juvenile court for Martha Moxley's murder. A juvenile court because he was only 15 years old at the time of the crime. However, on January 31st, 2001, a judge ruled that Michael would be tried as an adult. Michael Skakel's trial began on May 7, 2002 in Norwalk, Connecticut. Michael's alibi during the trial was that he was at his cousin's house at the time of the murder. 
During the trial, the jury heard a part of a taped interview where Michael mentions the masturbating incident in the pine tree. On June 7, 2002, Michael Skakel was found guilty of murdering Martha Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. Dorothy Moxley was asked by a reporter what her thoughts were on the verdict, and she replied, quote, Today is a day where there is a winner and there is a loser. I just hate those days. I just wanted justice for Martha. That's what this is. It's all about Martha. I have empathy for the Skakel family. In January 2003, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. wrote a controversial article in the Atlantic Monthly entitled, A Miscarriage of Justice, where he insisted that Michael's indictment was, quote, triggered by an inflamed media and that an innocent man is now in prison. In that same article, RFK Jr. argued that there was more evidence suggesting that Kenneth Littleton had killed Martha. And in July 2016, RFK Jr. released a book defending Michael entitled Framed. Now, Michael Skakel has consistently maintained his innocence, and year after year, he worked hard to appeal his case. In November 2003, he appealed his case, arguing that the case should have been heard in juvenile court rather than the superior court, and that the statute of limitations had expired on the charges against him. On January 12, 2006, the Connecticut Supreme Court rejected his claims and maintained his conviction. However, after serving just 11 years for the murder of Martha Moxley, Michael was released on the 21st of November 2013 on parole after his case had been placed back in front of a judge one month earlier in October. Michael was released from prison after $1.2 million bond was paid. Michael was required to wear an ankle monitor, and he was initially instructed not to leave the state of Connecticut, but he was eventually able to relocate to New York State to be closer to his family. The reason the judge granted Michael's early release was due to the judge's ruling that his old lawyer had failed to give him an adequate defense during his trial, as his defense lawyer had allegedly been too invested in the media frenzy and the celebrity that had come along with defending a Kennedy relative in a trial. When Martha Moxley's mother, Dorothy, spoke to a magazine in 2016, three years after Michael had been released, she said, quote, It had been 41 years since Martha died. When you gather all this information for a long time, you get to a point where you put it all together and it just fits. Soon after Martha's murder, we offered a $100,000 reward, offering for any information that would lead to the arrest of whoever murdered Martha. All the tips we received were about Michael. On May 4, 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court overturned Michael's conviction despite heavy protest from the Moxie family and the public who were aware of this case. On October 30, 2020, 45 years to the day that Martha had been murdered, the prosecution announced that they will not be redrying the case against Michael Skakel due to there not being enough surviving witnesses or any new evidence. My personal opinion is they had the right guy and they let him go. What are your thoughts? So what do you think happened? Do you think it was Michael? 
Do you think it was Thomas or Kenneth? I would love to know what you think. I think they all know something. I think that report is exactly right. I feel like maybe Michael did kill her and say the sexual encounter with Thomas was true. I think that Michael may have found out about it and was jealous and attacked Martha out of rage because he probably wanted her and was mad that she liked Thomas. I don't know. But I think that Thomas and Kenneth probably saw something or helped in some way. And mentally, they were all destroyed by what had happened. I think it shows in their actions years after the murder. Um, I know Michael did get sober um, when he married his wife. I know that much. But either way, I feel like he is the killer here in this case and sadly when you have 1.2 million dollars you can get out of being in jail and you can you know use your money and power and the Kennedy name to to walk free even if you murdered someone I genuinely believe that but I could be wrong let me know what your thoughts are head over to the podcast Instagram as always to let me know what you think about today's case that is going to do it for me this week, guys. I hope you have a great Halloween. I will be back here in two weeks. Until then, stay safe, especially on Halloween. Bye, guys.